Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. It's good to gather with you again with the promise of God's grace that not only sustains us through the night, but his promise of mercy to be met with each morning. If you're new here this morning or recently visiting, we want to welcome you. Glad you're here. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. Uh, If we haven't met, please make a point to introduce yourself. I'll be at the back door there after the service. Would love to uh, be introduced to you and learn if there's any way that we can further get to know you or serve you or point you in any direction as you would uh, learn about um, God's grace here at our gathering at, at Veritas Church. This morning we return to the Gospel of Mark. We took a bit of a break through our Advent season in the month of December, but if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 10 as we consider the first 12 verses. Mark chapter 10. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles there in front of you in the back of the seat, you'll find this portion of Scripture on page 794. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Our God and our Father, we look to you this morning mindful that your word is the authority over all creation. That it is by your word that you spoke all into existence. Out of nothing, by the authority and the power of your word, you spoke and it came to be. Lord, we recognize that your word not only has creative power, but because it is your word, it has ultimate authority. And we also acknowledge and confess that we do not always hear well, that we do not always see well, and that we do not always respond well. And so we ask in your mercy and by your spirit that you would cause your word to overcome hard hearts, dull minds, and blind eyes. We trust, Lord, that your word is powerful. We know, Lord, even from your word as we consider it, that your word resounds over all creation. And even as we hear the howling of the wind and the snapping of trees, that it reminds us of the authority of your word. That your word has authority over the water and it thunders. And the voice of the Lord, your voice, is is powerful that it does break cedars, 
that it makes, as the psalmist says, even Lebanon to skip, as it were, a calf. That your voice flashes forth flames of fire. Your voice causes the oaks to shake. And so, Lord, what we need is your voice. We need your voice to resound in our church and our lives. And we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to receive it as it is. Your word we pray. Amen. Well, preaching expositionally through the book, through various books of the Bible, can at times feel like traversing your way through a field of of landmines. And left to our own choosing, there are certain subjects that we would rather leave untouched, that we would make great pains to even take a wide berth around to avoid touching them or talking about them. But, When the Word of God sets the course for a church, inevitably we will walk into all manner of difficult and even sometimes painful subjects. Uh, Just consider the context by way of reminder since it's been a few weeks. The context of these difficult subjects within the Gospel of Mark. Think back to Mark chapter 9 verses 33 to 37 where Jesus teaches about greatness, true greatness, and ambition, warning his hearers that there is a sort of selfish ambition that resides within all of us, but it is contrary to the kingdom of God and this virtue of servanthood and considering others more important than ourselves. If you think back to chapter 9, verse 42 through 50, Jesus starts talking about dealing with temptation and the sobering reality of hell. He speaks of cutting off hands or feet. He speaks of tearing out eyes. And he speaks of the torturous eternality of hell. If you look ahead to chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, Jesus talks about money. He talks about possessions. And he talks about how wealth is very often a stumbling block for entering the kingdom of God and that our earthly possessions often keep us from faithfully serving God. And this morning, we come to the matter of marriage and divorce. As I've spent time in the passage this past week and walking through the subject, I recognize there are numerous challenges in in handling this passage well and faithfully. For one, this is a subject that can be controversial and emotionally charged. Let's state the obvious. Recognizing that we live in a culture in a society where nearly half of all marriages end in divorce, what that means is there's hardly a person who's not been impacted by divorce directly or indirectly. The subject is visceral. It cuts across emotions. It often stirs up anger, bitterness, betrayal, remorse. The other challenge is that messy situations don't always lend themselves to easy answers. Many situations require tremendous wisdom, and it's not always clear immediately what is the correct counsel here. Now, the easier option, recognizing all of that, is to just turn a blind eye to divorce within the church. Let's just pretend it really isn't there. Don't ask people about it. Don't bring it up. 
and certainly don't say anything about it in a membership interview. The hard thing, though, is to open up our Bibles and to honestly allow the Spirit of God to teach about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and then seek to apply it prayerfully to our specific situations. So as we come to a topic like this, marriage and divorce, it's been my prayerful hope this week that we would be able to approach this in two ways. One, in humility. Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce cuts against much of our culture's popular opinion, but more practically and more relevantly, against the desires and opinions of our own hearts. We must receive this word with meekness, just as we would seek to receive all of God's word. But not only in humility, we need to deal with this text also in gentleness, recognizing that divorce is a very painful subject for many. And therefore, we should not come to the text in a very clinical or detached manner, seeking to just exegete well, define our verbs, make application, and move on. But we are to recognize that this subject and Jesus' teaching touches real people, fellow members, and those that we care for with understanding and patience. Saying all of that, if we're going to understand the real problem of divorce and not only see the design for marriage, then we must also see the ultimate purpose for marriage. So let's consider what Jesus lays out here in Mark 10 as we seek to walk through the problem within marriage. Jesus is then going to lay out the pattern for marriage, which inevitably leads to the permanence of marriage. And then let's close by considering the purpose of marriage. Those are the signposts along the way to help us traverse this landmine, field of landmines, the problem, the pattern, the permanence, and the purpose. Look back at verse 1, where it gets to the real problem within marriage. He, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Verse 3, he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, remember, going all the way back to Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees had been looking for a situation in which they could ensnare, trap Jesus in order to, in Mark's words, destroy him. They are on a mission to destroy Jesus' not only reputation and credibility, but his life. And so we must read the narrative here in chapter 10 with that illumination, knowing a bit of the revealed motive of these men, the Pharisees, who come up to question Jesus. Meaning, the question that they're not asking is a genuine question from the back row seeking to get some sort of information. The question is being asked as a trap. It's being asked, as Mark says, to test him. The strategy, we all know it's a pretty common tactic, especially in debates 
or in politics or in some sort of cross-examination, find a divisive issue, force the person to take a side on that issue, and then leverage whatever group of people they've offended with that answer. It's essentially what the Pharisees are seeking to do. And because the opinions of the day, especially within many rabbis and Jewish teaching, were so polarized, they knew if we get an answer on this, we've got a soundbite that we can use against Jesus and further our plot to destroy him. So the question has to do with the legality of divorce. Particularly, Jesus, when is divorce lawful? But what does Jesus do? Instead of offering up some little soundbite for the Pharisees to run with, he responds to their question with a question, as he often does, and he simply points them back to the word of God and asks, what did Moses command? And the response, their response, is a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, if you want to make note. Verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And then it goes on to say, cite that he can write a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and send her out of the house. And the real rub of the matter here, it's highlighted in Matthew's gospel. As the Pharisees come up to him, Matthew 19, verse 3, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. This is the real sharp point on the pencil of what they're getting at. The Pharisees are pointing to Deuteronomy 24 as the debate of the day had to do with words, as they often do. What does indecency mean? Because that's the real clause within that portion of Scripture that all of this hangs on. If a man finds some sort of indecency with his wife, he can write a certificate of divorce and put her away. So the debate that's raging is, Jesus, how do you define indecency? If you define that, then you can define the legality of divorce. Jesus, is this a subjective term that a husband can define where I find something indecent within her? left to my own opinions of standards, and I can then legally send her away? Or, Jesus, do you take more of a different approach that this word indecency means something more objective? Is it lawful to divorce a man's, for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? But rather than enter the debate directly on these terms, Jesus takes the conversation in a different direction. It's kind of a trick question because what did Moses command? Yeah, Moses wrote Deuteronomy, but he also wrote the book of Genesis. It is true. Moses determined that if a man were to divorce his wife, he must provide for her a certificate of divorce. But what Jesus is getting at here, this was a concession, not a command. It's helpful to understand that much of the civil and judicial laws in the Old Testament are understood as case law, uh, case law or common law, that are laws that are progressively laid down by the outcome of former cases. And within progressive revelation, and within a world marred and marked by sin, God gives his law to his people in a sense, in response to the reality of where we're at. Sin has entered the world, therefore we need this sort of understanding of how we live in a world marked by sin. And particularly, 
in a culture where men held all the authority. Women and children were often treated as possessions. You can imagine how many instances there were of men simply walking away from their wives or kicking them out of their homes and how exposed this would have left women. Therefore, because of the hardness of men's hearts, Moses gave this law as a hurdle, as a protection, as a, as a refuting of the abandonment of serial divorce. This exists because of how bad things are. And for the Pharisees then, to build their theology of marriage and divorce by pointing to Deuteronomy 24, that's a problematic way to begin. It would be as if you wanted to take flight lessons and you buckled into the cockpit. And as you buckle into the cockpit, the first thing the trainer does is pull out the manual, turn to chapter 24, and tell you how to crash well. (laughs) Important, absolutely necessary, but probably not the most helpful way to begin when considering the subject. It's essentially what the Pharisees are doing is they are pointing to a reality that is an important reality that God has defined, but there's something that comes before that that you should probably consider if you want to answer this question well. The exceptional measures necessary for when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and expectations of marriage. And for this, we need to turn elsewhere. And that's what Jesus does. Let's consider the pattern of marriage secondly. As we see this unfold in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. Let's start at the beginning. That is a very good place to start. And what is the pattern for marriage established in creation? What is Jesus pointing to and emphasizing as he goes to Genesis 2? Well, first he says, there's a design to rightly understand marriage and your question about divorce, we're meant to see that God is the creator of marriage. He created man in his own image. He created them male and female. And by his good and righteous design, he formed the original marriage as a prototype for all marriage. And so what Jesus declares is that the maleness and the femaleness are rooted in the creative will of God, and they are therefore foundational to understand marriage. The woman is not his subordinate, his property, his slave. She's the fellow image bearer of God. So in one sense, he is setting the table and making a level foundation and saying God created them, male and female, in his own image. Think on that before you answer your question. There is a design. This means that marriage is not an American invention. Marriage is not a cultural invention. Marriage is not an expression of a state 
or particular polity. It means marriage is not a human idea that we can tweak with or do with or absolve as we please because there's a designer. And when humanity rejects the sanctity of marriage, one man, one woman, till death do us part, they are rejecting not just a cultural invention. They're rejecting the creator who is God. And the cultural disregard for marriage is just yet another expression of the bigger problem. Our sinful rebellion against God as our creator. And so he says there's a design, but within that design, Jesus also teaches there's a particular direction. Notice there's a trajectory. There's a direction within this design. A boy is raised by his parents, and there comes a time in this boy's life where he leaves father, he leaves mother, and he holds fast to his wife to such a degree that in God's word, they become one flesh. It's a directional movement where two individuals lay aside single-minded individual pursuits and they direct all of their energy towards this oneness, the union of marriage. But divorce, it moves against the God-given trajectory of two becoming one. Now this highlights a problem that lies within much of our thinking. The problem is that we often view marriage as two individuals moving side by side in unison rather than two individuals who've become one. And oftentimes marriage is thought of simply as a 50-50 share, each partner pulling their load. And when we think of something that is really two parts, it's much easier to consider separating because they're just two individuals who happen to be in step. They're not really whole, they're two parts. But what Christ teaches here is while each spouse certainly maintains their, maintains their identity as male and female and as image bearers of God, marriage is a dissolving of two independent and autonomous persons into one united pursuit that God calls oneness. There's not only a direction, there's also a decree. Even though two humans decide to get married, or it's decided for them in some cultures, a human pastor performs the ceremony, and even if a human government recognizes the union, what Christ teaches is that the author of all of that is God. Therefore, God has the right to declare that he joined through marriage, and what he joined through marriage that mere humans have no right to divide. It's neither man nor woman that controls marriage, but God who is the Lord of marriage. This is the decree. The same God who said, let us create man in our own image, also said, leave, hold fast, and become one flesh. No less authority in that second statement than the first. Therefore, to tear such a thing apart is to destroy God's creation not man's invention. That is the decree. Now, may the Holy Spirit cause these verses to ring loudly in our ears. 
Anytime we are tempted to flirt with someone else's husband or wife, or to casually entertain even the thoughts of what it would like to be with that person instead of this person, we must be on guard even of the thought of such an idea and soberly consider the reality of what Christ teaches here, that to break up a marriage is to break up something that God himself has made. Many Christians hate abortion because it is something, someone, that God has made. But many Christians tragically are very flippant about the same creative authority when God creates marriage. And the sobering reality of what Christ is pointing to is that the sanctity of marriage and the whole idea of marriage is the design, the direction, the decree of God. So before you begin asking me about legalities and loopholes of when it's right for a man to divorce his wife, consider what it is you're talking about. Within this pattern, there inevitably then arises the permanence of marriage. If all of this is true, then there's an implication. This is verses 10 through 12, the permanence of marriage. Look at that. And in the house, the disciples again asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now let's remember, all of this has to do with the Pharisees' question back in verse 2 regarding the lawfulness of divorce. Specifically, as we know from Matthew 19.3, divorce for any reason, for any cause. And the conclusion of Jesus' teaching here revealed to the disciples in this teaching moment, is consistent with everything that Jesus has been laying out. This is the then statement of all these ifs. Do you know what I mean? If God is the author of marriage, and if the bond of marriage makes two into one by God's joining, and if this bond is not meant to be separated, then this idea of unbiblical divorce is a problem. For if the divorce is invalid or unscriptural, then the man or woman is still married. And the second marriage becomes adulterous by the fact that they're still married. For you are taking a husband or a wife whom you have no right to. And the emphasis of Jesus' teaching is to deny the Pharisees' presumption from the outset for divorce in general. Now, there is certainly more that we could say about the subject of divorce. If we're going to think thoroughly, we should be also considering Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. That includes the implication of sexual immorality that breaks the one flesh union that God established. The marriage covenant makes two into one, but it is possible, according to Scripture, for certain sin to break that apart. 
this term sexual immorality that you'll find Matthew 5, Matthew 19, it's actually reference to the holiness code found in Leviticus. It's a word that would be describing various aspects of holiness within God's law and teaching. It would refer to such things like adultery, fornication, incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. This broader consideration of divorce would also need to include 1 Corinthians 7, which gives instructions to those who are divorced by unbelieving spouses, a spouse who does not profess the name of Christ nor worship him. If you know anything about Corinth and the culture there, and when the gospel comes to a pagan city like that, you can imagine how there would be homes where one spouse is converted and the other is not. Paul, what do we do? Should we leave these unbelieving spouses? No, 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 no. What if this unbelieving spouse leaves me? Let them go. And you're free to remarry. So what we see keeping in mind here is that scripture does not teach that the act of sexual infidelity in itself automatically ends the marriage and must end in divorce but it does teach that such a sin is serious enough of a violation of the covenant that the innocent party has a right to divorce if he or she chooses so from those two exceptions What we can say is that even though all divorces are the result of sin, not all divorces are sinful. And this is the thrust of Christ's teaching. If a marriage ends in divorce for some reason other than these two exceptions, the divorce is unscriptural and the divorced individuals then must not remarry. Hence, the permanence of marriage. Only that which severs the bond that God establishes through the one flesh union would allow for a divorce. Anything anything outside of that is an unscriptural divorce and then sets up an adulterous remarriage. So to answer the original question, Mr. Pharisee, Jesus opposes the flippant approach to divorce and marriage that assumes divorce for any reason and lays out the definition and the nature of marriage in order to define the permanence of that union. If all of this is true, let's ask why. The easy answer is because God has ordained it. Because God has established it because he is the creator. But is there something else here that we need to think about? Is there some other implication to this reality of a marriage between a man and a woman that has an impact upon how we understand reality? Absolutely. If we're going to think about marriage and divorce and think well and think biblically, we must also think about the purpose of marriage. In a sense, these are the nuts and bolts. God's the designer. There's a direction. There's a decree. 
Therefore, there's a permanence. This is the schematic that you would look at and say, this is how all these pieces fit together. I want to put the elevation plan in front of you and show you what do all of those pieces point to. Why does this matter? To that, we need to turn over to Ephesians 5. Let's remind ourselves of God's word, considering the instruction the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. What is the purpose of marriage? Listen to God's word, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you see the purpose of marriage. According to the scriptures and by God's design, the goal of marriage points to something greater. It points to something else. Yes, it is about a man and a woman becoming one flesh and how that man and that woman relate to one another. But that marriage points to something else. According to the teaching of scripture, it's to tell a story. Marriage is a reenactment of the living drama of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his bride, the church. Much like many other created objects given to us by God, they point to a greater reality. It serves as a, as a picture, as, a, as an image, as a metaphor for some spiritual reality. If you've begun to be familiar with your scriptures, you know how this works. As you begin to uncover the truth of God's word, you realize bread is not just bread. Because bread, a created object given to us by God, is also given to remind me of Jesus and his sustaining and satisfying nature. You begin to realize that water, not just water, it reminds me of the cleansing from sin that Jesus brings. You begin to see that fire is not just fire. It often points to the afflictions, the testings, and the trials that, that refine our faith. 
And marriage is not just marriage. It's to remind us of how Christ relates to his church. You see, marriage has its highest purpose as it exists as a retelling of the wonderful story of how Christ pursues, serves, and remains faithful to his bride, the church. It begins with this pursuing love on behalf of God that in spite of the offense and all of the rebellious and hurtful actions of God's people, that Christ moves towards the sinner. It begins with pursuing love. And that pursuing love is met with repentance for sin and humility. That's our part, the church. Which then is met back with this welcoming embrace of God of giving favor, acceptance, not punishment. In a sense, then, each spouse takes turns reenacting these parts. The offended and the offender, displaying in that offense, pursuing love, repentance and humility, embrace and forgiveness. And so this constant dance of marriage, it's meant to be lived out between a husband and a wife. For what purpose? So that the onlooking world, children in the home, neighbors, friends, co-workers, fellow believers, would see the gospel retold or adorned before their eyes. And when you observe then, in this scenario, my sin towards my wife, her pursuing love, my repentance and humility, her forgiveness, it serves as a mini-sermon that Christ is faithful. The gospel is good news. I've heard it with my ears. It was just reenacted right there before my eyes. This means, friends, that marriages, even in their sin and in their brokenness, have the opportunity to put the gospel on display as spouses exhibit pursuing love, repentance and humility, and forgiveness. Don't misunderstand the application and thrust of Scripture and thinking that your marriage only points to Christ when it's perfect. That's not the teaching of Scripture. It gives us hope in hearing that marriages, even marred by sin and walking through the pain of sin, still, by God's wondrous mystery, have the opportunity to display the gospel of grace. That gives us tremendous hope this side of glory. Here's the real scandal then of divorce, of unbiblical divorce. This is the, the ultimate offense. Unbiblical divorce takes the gospel reenactment and it mars it. If marriage points to Christ and his bride, and if I decide to dissolve a marriage outside of the terms that Christ has laid out, instead of telling the good news of grace for sinners, it tells abandonment for sinners. It does not adorn the gospel. 
It mars it. So then greater than the disruption of the family, stronger than the pain of bitterness, and more intense than the sting of betrayal, the lie that unbiblical divorce tells is that it's a broken covenant. That is not reflective of what Christ and the church upholds. What the model of Christ and the church upholds is that Christ will never leave his bride. Therefore, we keep our marriage vows in such a way as to tell the truth about Christ and his church. Now, in saying all of this, I recognize we cannot approach a text like this in a detached clinical matter because, as we said, the topic of divorce is visceral. It cuts us. It can arouse feelings of guilt, shame, Anger, hopelessness, because your parents might be divorced. You might be sinfully divorced. You might be sinfully divorced and sinfully remarried. So pastorally, I look at a text like this and say, how is this good news for the divorced? I'm here to tell you this morning, this passage Mark 10, Ephesians 5, and every other portion of Scripture that points to it is wonderfully good news for the divorced. Because the Scriptures elevate our understanding of marriage by urging us not to look to ourselves, but to look to Christ and His church. And when we look to Christ, and when we look to His church, what do we see? We see one who remains faithful even when we're unfaithful, we see his pursuing love. We see abundant grace given not to the deserving, but what we see, it's lavished upon the undeserving. And so what we hear is our story of sin and unfaithfulness swallowed up in his greater story of faithful covenant love. The sin of divorce is covered in the blood of Jesus. If you are wrongfully divorced and unbiblically remarried, you do not need to walk around with a red D sewn upon your shirt. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 3, truly, I tell you, all sins will be forgiven. Confession and repentance are promised to be met with grace and mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. The gospel triumphs over sin, the sin of divorce, by uniting us to a faithful Jesus who declares us to be washed, declares us to be forgiven, accepted, and adopted. You are a new creature in Christ. That is wonderfully good news. But Jesus' teaching about marriage is not just good news for those who've walked through the pain of divorce. Jesus' teaching about marriage is great news for sinners. This is the reality. The very essence of marriage points us to a Christ who does not remain with us only in our faithfulness. How encouraging would that be? I'll be with you as long as you're faithful this week. 
But what the gospel proclaims is that this Christ remains faithful to her bri- his bride in spite of her unfaithfulness, in spite of her willful, hard-hearted indulgence in sin. The meaning of marriage is, put, is, is the display of this covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. Christ remains faithful to an unfaithful people. That's the essence of the gospel. His pursuing love and his lavish grace, they're not given to the deserving that he doles out like gold stars and blue ribbons at the end of the week. He doles it out to the undeserving. And so as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and shows us those areas of unfaithfulness, we then look to Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the promise of restoration. In short, the history of unfaithfulness, of betrayal, of abandonment, and loss, that's the story of every single one of us. Because we have been unfaithful to our God. We have betrayed Him. We have served our sin rather than the King in His righteousness. We've abandoned Him in pursuit of our own foolish desires. And yet, the hope of the gospel shines brighter even in the midst of such darkness because of what the gospel announces. Christ died for sin. Christ rose for our justification. Some of you are familiar with the book of Hosea and the wonderful message that is throughout that book. Hosea 2, verse 16. Listen to the promise that God gives to His people. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, the false gods of culture. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Now, if you know anything about the book of Hosea, you know why that is so significant. Because the indictment against God's people in the opening chapters are that you are a people without mercy. You are not my people. But this promise comes in what God will do to redeem his people. The very ones who should be able to say, I have no mercy. I'm not God's people. He says, no, you are. You are my people on the basis of my covenant, on the basis of my grace and my faithfulness to you. What all of this saying is saying to us, church, is two words. Good news. That is what this says. It says that Christ is a faithful husband who pursues his wayward bride, covers, atones for all her sin and shame, and he warmly embraces her in eternal covenant union. End of story. Because that is true, And because that is God's word, let's look to him. Let's place our hope in him. 
and our confidence in his mercy. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, how greatly we need to hear and rehear of your great mercy for us. We're particularly mindful of the way that our own sin and our own folly mars the relationships that we hold most dear. We're painfully aware of the way that our sin ruins the very things that you called good. So, Father, the only place that we have to turn and that we have to hope is to you, for you have the words of life. So, Father, we pray that you would bear us up, married, unmarried, single, divorced, widowed, children or adult, that you would bear us up under the wonderful banner of this great news of Christ and his faithfulness for his bride. Lord, we pray that you would cause us as your people to rejoice in and to rest in this wonderful news that you pursue sinners, that you love to lavish grace upon your people, that you receive us to yourself and you promise to be faithful to us even in our most unfaithful and wicked moments. Lord, continue to cause this gospel of grace to draw us to you. Continue to cause this gospel of grace to enable us to walk in kindness, in mercy, in repentance and humility. Lord, we pray that you would bear us up in such a way that the testimony not only of our homes and our lives, but the very church that you've established here, the testimony would be that of a multitude of people that adorn the gospel of God and the way that we relate to one another respond and receive one another, that it would be a continuing adorning of this good gospel, that Christ may be exalted, that his name might be proclaimed, and that you might continue to bring glory to yourself, we pray. Amen.